You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Jim Ewing has been an avid climber most of his life. He would injure his foot during a climbing trip to the Cayman Islands. After realizing amputation might be the best route to regain some mobility, he would connect with Hugh Herr, a biophysicist at MIT, and would undergo a radical new amputation, now known as the Ewing amputation. All of this is the subject of Augmented, a feature documentary that premiered this past month on Nova PBS. Jim is back to climbing, so we chat with him about this journey and this documentary. So, Jim, I thought we'd start by uh, just talking about uh, your introduction to climbing, you know, at the beginning. How early, how, how young were you and, and what got you involved in, in climbing? Uh, that's, that's really a long story because I got started uh, climbing very early, um, probably 12, 13 years old just scrambling and bouldering um, on family backpacking trips or hiking trips. And um, then later in my, I guess in middle school, um, I took a summer class called outdoor learning through the local high school. Hmm. And we did backpacking and canoeing and, uh, and rock climbing and, and, Prior to that, my brother had become a climber, um, and so I kind of tagged along with him as much as I could and um, stole his gear when I <laughs> had the opportunity. <laughs> um, and also what kind like, of inspired... Like, like brothers do, though, right? Yeah, like brothers do, yeah. Um, what really kind of got me really inspired to to take up climbing was... Um, I, we used to just hang out in our bedrooms as kids and listen to music and flip through National Geographic magazines. And there was just all these climbing expeditions all over the world and um, in, in Yosemite National Park and Mount Everest. And I, I just remember just taking in every photo and just, uh, uh, I don't know combing through every word, every account, and just falling in love with the whole idea of climbing and adventure. And, uh, and that was, yeah, that was it. And I've been doing it ever since. And, and so where has climbing taken you? Well, it's kind of taken me all, all over the world. Um, I've, I've climbed in, I, I can't even count how many countries. Um, it's, but more than more than that, like I don't remember that much about all of the climbs, but I remember pretty much everybody that I've ever climbed with. I remember the adventures, um, the beautiful places. It's I can't think of very many other activities that inspires people to to travel to these kind of places. Yeah, I, remember, I know in in the documentary your your quote i think is saying you remember the experiences and, and the experience yes yeah yeah the experiences are really where it's at and and what what do you think it is about that experience what is it about climbing uh versus maybe any other activity um 
I, I don't know. I guess I've always just been drawn to adventure of, of almost any kind. Um, doesn't necessarily have to always be climbing for me. It's I've gone on other adventures of um, skiing and sea kayaking, and whitewater kayaking, and um, you know, just various adventurous type sports. Yeah. And I, I don't know what it is about adventure, but that just it it's what moves me. It's what makes me feel alive. So, yeah. Is it the thrill? Is it the risk? Is it a, a well, combination? It, I think it's, um, well, yeah. Usually when, when somebody finds out I'm a, I'm a climber and they right away peg you as an adrenaline junkie and sure um, that, that played into part of it when I was, when I was younger, but um, mostly climbs don't, generate that kind of adrenaline for me anymore so it's it's just really about the setting the the mountains in general uh just they're they're breathtaking beautiful places um where i get to challenge myself physically and hopefully share that experience with with uh, a, a willing partner and um yeah yeah i don't know how else to say it you know adventure just is what drives me yeah, so it's partly the scenery and being able to see something from a different perspective that a lot of folks don't get to see it from. That's true. The views views from summits are unlike anything else. Hmm. That's cool. And so what what are some of the I guess most extravagant or most challenging climbs that you that you've taken? Um, probably the most extravagant was one that I did uh, post amputation with uh, another adaptive climber named Maureen Beck, and uh, we we tried to do an all adaptive ascent of a of a mountain in Canada called the Lotus Flower Tower. Mm. Um, ultimately, um, I got sick on our second day on this this giant wall. And, um, and I couldn't really lead anymore. I, did, I was kind of out of gas, out of energy and looking at just giving up. But we were there with a film crew. And so we, we kind of borrowed their ropes for a little bit and just uh, jugged up their ropes for a few pitches and uh, still got to the summit, but it wasn't adaptive only. Um, so I kind of want to go back to it at some point, but uh, it's 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 a big trip. It takes a lot to get there. Yeah, indeed. And, and so you you met Hugh in, in 1984. How did that meeting come about? So he his accident happened in 1982, and I um, was a climber, an ice climber in New Hampshire at the time, but I was an in high school. So I was well aware of his accident happening. And then um, a couple of winters after he was ice climbing again, and we climbed side by side on a, a cliff in New Hampshire called Frankenstein Cliff. And uh, so we, we met then, but um, didn't didn't think much of it. It's just, you know, you, you just meet climbers and, mm -hmm. and you move on. But then later um, I started teaching climbing in North Conway, New Hampshire uh, during the summers. And um, 
actually uh, while I was in college. I was at Unity College at Unity, Maine. And I was hitchhiking to North Conway on the weekends to teach ice climbing. And Hugh moved back to New Hampshire after his accident. Well, he moved from Pennsylvania to New Hampshire. And, and I guess he was kind of on a mission to prove himself and, and to uh, reinsert himself into the climbing world. And he needed a place to live. I had a place that um, I was renting. So he, he moved in there and yeah, we became roommates. Actually, there were several of us who kind of cycled in and out of this uh, flea bag chalet. <laughs> it was it was really quite a dive, um, you know, because being a dirt bag climber, you, you look for the cheapest places you can find. And this place was infested with cockroaches. You couldn't drink the water. It was it was kind of a really awful place, um, but it was cheap. Yeah, uh, and, and you were young, and you said that's you yeah. know a little bit more acceptable at a time. <laughs> right. Young, young and, and relatively durable. Like you could stand up to that kind of stuff and think nothing of it. And so um, were you like basically lifelong friends at that point from that point in time? Um, not not really. I mean, we actually when he lived there, I don't know if we ever actually climbed much together. Um, really? He he was working at a local um, uh producer of climbing gear, a company called Wild Things. And I was teaching climbing for one of the local climbing schools. So we didn't have much time together there, but we spent our evenings um, hanging out in the chalet or going out to bars, whatnot. Um, I, I, I have a rather wild story of going out to a bar dancing with Hugh that he oddly doesn't remember, but it was <laughs> it was really something. Uh, this, you know, back in the eighties, we were, we were weird back then. So, um, yeah, it's funny. He doesn't remember the story at all. It's, I think your selective memory, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and so fast forward a little bit to your trip, uh, to the Cayman islands and, and, uh, that climbing adventure, I think you went out with your daughter. If I, re if I remember from the film. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I know you describe a little bit in, in augmented, but um, what, you know, what happened uh, at that point in time that that re resulted in your fall and your accident? So um, we were in, in, on Cayman Brock and on Christmas day, we had gone scuba diving, had a great day. The day after Christmas, um, we met up with some other friends at a, a cliff called Dixon's wall and I had never climbed there, but um, it's some of the best climbing on the island. So we we did a handful of climbs, and um, my wife was going to be flying in that afternoon. So I chose one more climb. I said, I'll do this one last one, and then we got to go to the airport. And because um, I, at the time, uh, well, I still do outweighed my daughter by, you know, 80 to hundred pounds or so. Um, it's pretty common practice in that kind of a situation for the belayer, um, in this case, my daughter to be anchored to the ground or anchored to something near the ground. <clears throat> and the way, um, I set things up, she was down a little bit of a hill 
and a little bit back away from the the base of the cliff but the my my big error was that i left the the pile of rope that feeds um to her uh to the belayer and then up to me was uphill in front of them and so when i when i fell um the the belay device initially locked but didn't stay locked because of the angles of the ropes the way the the feeding rope was relative to the rope going to me there with this particular type of device called a, a grigri the ropes were nearly parallel and anyone who's familiar with that particular device knows that that situation it's very easy to feed the rope through it so um i think in combination with her being anchored to the ground all of the the geometry of everything just set it up perfectly so that the device couldn't lock and so it was actually burning her hand while she was trying to hold it and ultimately she had to let it go and i i had taught her i mean she'd been climbing with me for years and held dozens of falls through throughout that time and um i had always taught her that if for some reason this device doesn't lock you need to get your hands away from it because chances are your hands are interfering with it locking and usually if you let go of the device and let it do its job it will lock hmm. but be, but because of the geometry of the way i had set things up um it was unable to lock and like i said there was it it attempted to lock a couple of times but then um it just released and i went all the way to the ground about 50 or 60 feet yeah and i know you had uh, uh suffered a lot of injuries uh, 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 with the fall obviously with pelvis and and a number of <laughs> uh, bone fractures or breaks um when so obviously you ultimately had an amputation which we'll talk about and an amputation mm -hmm. is named after you now but um <laughs> uh which we, which we'll talk about um but uh how long of a period were you in a like a limb salvation mode were you so um i spent about um well i was out of work for six months before i could even move enough to to return to work um and then i was in physical therapy for the next six months or more and during that time kind of all of the the injuries were were getting better and, and feeling better rehabilitated but the ankle continued to decline continued to get more painful um and less mobility and you know i had a, a bucket of screws nuts and bolts in there that i just i felt like it the the metal hurt and i could feel it and it just hurt inside it ached in the bone it just and so i kept asking doctors about um removing the hardware and the local um orthopedic surgeons that i saw said well we we would like you to wait um at least to a year uh before we attempt to take out the hardware so at just about the year mark um i had a cat scan on the ankle and it came back showing that the bone was still broken so the the main fracture mm. um was still there
And this type of fracture, I guess I didn't know all this going in, but uh, when you fracture a talus bone, there's a scale called the Hawkins scale. Hmm. And, and it's one, two, three, and four. And four maybe being, maybe there is a five, I'm, I'm not sure, but four is about as bad as it gets. <clears throat> it means that the bone has essentially been crushed and pulverized. So I had a, a Hawkins type four. And uh, so I started, I started uh, combing through articles, research papers, and medical journals, trying to find more information about uh, outcomes for a Hawkins type four. And also um, looking for new procedures, new um, surgeries that could potentially salvage this bone. I, I was even um, looking at prosthetic bones and, and having, having one made, uh, a custom one made out of titanium to put in there. And like I was talking to surgeons about this and um, I, I was looking for anything that was going to give me some hope and give me some mobility back, but also um, you know, salvage, salvage my foot. But um, I started at a certain point thinking about, I might be better off removing the foot and, and just moving on with my life. I mean, I remembered Hugh from when he and I lived together that he was a very strong climber at the time, one of the strongest in the world at the time. And so it obviously is not having an amputation is not necessarily a detriment, but I viewed trying to keep my biological foot as less and less viable because of I had extensive nerve damage that made the sole of my foot, the skin on the sole was excruciating to the touch. Um, mm. putting on, putting on socks, taking off socks was every time was an excruciating experience. Um, so unless whatever route I chose, um, un unless they could fix the nerve issues, I would just, I would be completely disabled. Um, I wouldn't be able to really walk on it. If I had a fusion, um, I would still have that sensitive foot, but then have an ankle that can't really do anything. Right. Um, and a, a couple of surgeons told me that they weren't even all that sure that I could fuse um, my ankle because there was so much hardware in there and the bone was so dead um, that you know, it, was, it was just a mess. Mm. So I, I decided, I think it was in January, so the accident was in December of 2014, January of 2016, I gave Hugh a call and asked to come see him and, and talk about um, what he might know in terms of uh, salvaging this ankle. Does he know of anyone or know of any new procedures that, that could save this? But if not, then what would life as an amputee look like for me? <laughs> and and he said, uh, and, and this kind of just went right over my head at first. He said uh, that he and his team, uh, coupled with a team from Brigham and Women's, had developed a new amputation protocol, but that they hadn't tried it out yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
they were currently searching for for human test subjects and and like i said that just kind of went right over my head um because i was still focused on keeping my my foot keeping the ankle so uh he set up um he gave me the the contact information for Dr. Cardi, Matthew Cardi, and to talk to him about possible salvaging of the the ankle, but also talk to him about whether or not I was a candidate for the amputation. And so when I went to see him, I guess I went to see him maybe in February or March of 2016. Uh, he set up a, a series of appointments for me to see um, probably one of the best foot and ankle surgeons in the world. Um, and I think a pain, pain specialist and you know, a couple other doctors um, to see what could be done for salvaging my, my ankle. Um, oh, and also we, we tested the nerves to see if they could isolate where the nerves were damaged and whether or not that could be repaired. And all of that stuff just came back kind of inconclusive, like, well, we don't think we can fix those nerves. Um, and the uh, foot and ankle surgeon said, well, you know, I like to give people three options. Your first option would be to do nothing. Um, your second option would be to uh, do arthrodesis to, to fuse the ankle, but to basically fuse all of it. So not just the joint between the tibia and the talus bone, but to also do the subtalar joint and perhaps even the talonavicular joint, which um, people who've had those types of fusions, they get the tibiotalar fusion and then down the line, they get the subtalar fusion and then down the line, they get the tibiotalar because all the stress of walking gets transferred to the remaining joints mm -hmm. and they eventually, they eventually wear out. So he, he said, well, we'll save you a surgery and we'll just, we'll do two of those fusions in the, in the first go, but then you'll be back later on to do um, the third one. And I just, I was like, God, I'm, I'm already at the time, I guess I was 51, 52 years old. I'm like, I, I just want to get back to doing stuff and going in for surgery every few years just didn't seem like a great plan to me. And so I started really thinking more towards, uh, the amputation. Um, and I think by March or April of 2016, I had made the decision to go ahead with the the, the new <laughs> experimental procedure. <laughs> and so the that amputation took place in July of 2016. And um, and so I wasn't quite sure in the in the document in the and augmented the documentary. Um, I assume you had to go through an amputation and then there was some time between that and, and when you went through like the stimulus and the, and all of those tests. Yeah. So, um, so the amputation was the, the first step. Um, and that was like July, I think July 19th um, of 2016. So <laughs> amputees like to call that their ampuversary. <laughs> um, 
And it was always part of the plan that once I was recovered from the surgery and um, received my first prosthesis, that I would be going to MIT to um, run various tests and um, eventually get connected to one of the, the prototype robot feet. Okay. And, and what, um, what uh, possessed you, I guess, for the lack of a better word to want to go, want to be, a, 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 as you said, a, a test, a test subject. Um, well, I guess it goes back to that sense of adventure. Like, mm -hmm. Hey, this is, this is something adventurous, never, never been done before. Let, let's give it a shot. Um, but also I, I, at the time, had been working as an engineer for over 20 years, and uh, I was actually, at the time, also in school for mechanical engineering. Hmm. So it just all kind of fit together. Like, I understood the technology. I understood um, all the, the science behind it. I understood less of the, the biological side, but... Um, came to learn a lot more about it uh, as I was heading towards amputation, let's say. Um, when I started researching um, all the various procedures to, to salvage an ankle, I learned all the anatomy and all the, the uh, different muscles involved, the ligaments involved, and um, uh, became reasonably knowledgeable about tailless injuries. And, and in Augmented, it follows you, obviously, through a number of test um, uh, sessions. And I have to say, one of the things that, that at least in, in watching it, uh, I saw that you were, you were very responsive, very descriptive, at least for uh, probably a lot, of, a lot of guys or a lot of men. You know, I'm like, when I'm at a doctor's office, I, I have very little to say. Like, where's your pain? I don't know. Where's your? Where's this? I don't know. So it seemed like right. you were at least very engaged in in sharing, you know, that type of information. Yeah, I um, I like to be in in most of my communications. I like to be as precise as possible. And sitting there amongst a bunch of MIT uh, doctoral students, PhD students, researchers, I was like. I got to be kind of on my game and I got to give them everything I can to, to help them uh, push this along. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so after, um, did you feel like it was uh, successful, you know, all, all along? Did you feel progress? What, what, what was uh, so, feeling? So like? the, the early sessions in the lab were kind of uninspiring and, and boring even. Um, the lead researcher on this, Tyler, um, he spent, I don't know, maybe two or three lab sessions just measuring uh, my myelectric signals, um, figuring out where the muscles were and you know, gathering up those signals and then um, making me move, move a, a dot around on a computer screen with it. And he was basically, he was, testing kind of the limits of my control, like how precise could I be with this? Could I access the, the muscles in a controlled manner and make them do what I wanted? And then I think probably on the third session, I actually got to bench test one of the robots. So 
I got all wired up and um, the robot was mounted on a bench and I was able to move it around through space, which that was pretty cool, but it wasn't super satisfying because um, it didn't really feel like I'm doing anything. I'm just moving the muscles in my leg, in, in my residual limb, and the robot is just doing whatever it does. And it, it just did not feel like anything. And then on the next session, we actually put it on my, my socket and started to move it around. And I, I happened to glance up and notice that everyone in the lab was was watching they were like in hugh's lab there's a mezzanine people are lined up on the mezzanine there um, other researchers they're just all over the lab all staring and watching what was going on and it it struck me later on actually while i was driving home i was like wow this this was kind of a historic thing because they they weren't entirely sure that this was going to work mm-hmm. um <laughs> Like they, they did not know for certain that I would be able to control the, the robot as it to any degree, really, never mind how precisely I was able to control it. So it, it became much more satisfying to me. And when I say satisfying, like it, it felt like, wow, this is a, a, a viable um, replacement foot for me. Um, when I, I describe it as when there's parity between what your brain is thinking and what it, ex, it it expects, and then it it actually happens. So you know, if you're sitting and you push your toes into the floor, your your knee moves up, or your hip flexes, mm-hmm. and so those things were actually happening. And of course, you know, the robot doesn't have any sense of touch. There's no skin sensation or anything. But when I pushed my toes into the floor, my knee would come up and my hip would move. And that told my brain that, wow, there's there's something there and you can use it and it's controllable. So let's let's get to using it. And so once the once the robot was tuned and uh, tuned to me, it it became part of my body and and there was an interesting phenomenon that would happen while we we're doing all these tests. Tyler would occasionally turn the robot off, and I could feel this shock in my brain, like not an electrical shock, but this, oh crap, your foot's gone again, mm. like this instant little depression. And so I asked him to uh, let me know when you're going to turn it off. Cause I like, it's, it's jarring to my, to my system when it just all of a sudden isn't working anymore. So yeah. Give me a warning. Give me a heads up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so after all of, all of those test sessions, would you, how would you define it? I mean, would you define it as, as su- successful or even now looking back out? How would you define um, that whole effort? I, I would say that the the surgery was successful. So so going into this, um, it was viewed that um, that that prosthetics, prosthetic technology, these robotics and the bionics, had outpaced what the human body could do, what the human body could handle, and now with 
um, with this surgery, this procedure, this whole um, agonist antagonist um, mm-hmm. uh, interface, now it's flipped and they're racing to get the bionics to catch up to what the human body is capable of. So the, the, ro- the robot feet that I've tested, um, two of them are really pretty powerful. And uh, the first one was a little bit undersized and, and too fragile for everyday use. And the, the climbing one is really designed for just climbing specifically. It could be adapted to some, some other activities, but it was, it was not designed and built to be an actual viable product, but really a demonstration platform to show what the technology was, was capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the, the race is on in Hughes lab now is to, to develop um, more robust uh, robotic feet that ultimately could be available to the market. And, and as we alluded to, um, your amputation and that whole procedure is now kind of referred to as the as the Ewing amputation. What what's what's it like um, to to think about that and reflect on that? And then more importantly, even that others have now benefited essentially from that process as well. Um, when, when they told me that they were naming it after me at first, uh, uh, I felt a little embarrassed. Like I, I am not, <clears throat> I'm not an extrovert by any stretch. And so having my name attached to something like this, just, it felt somewhat embarrassing. And I thought, oh, oh, great. I will be forever known for my ability to lose body parts. <laughs> but, but at the same time, I, I do, I take it as a pretty high honor that um, I mean, there was uh, Dr. Cardi and and Tyler and Shreya and all these other people who contributed so much more to the development of this procedure um, that I, I feel somewhat undeserving of of this honor. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of a strange thing, but. Um, I, th- I think probably, uh, yeah, other people probably deserve more, more recognition for it. Understood, understood. And and I, and right right before we started chatting, you said you were coming back from the climbing gym. So obviously, yeah. you haven't you haven't stopped climbing. Oh, definitely, definitely not. In fact, I've I've probably ramped it up uh, significantly since amputation. Um, because I, I think you know the whole accident and and recovery, and I don't know there's not to get too deep into this, but there there was a great deal of emotional devastation that went along with it all, and I came to realize the the preciousness of movement of mobility. Um, like I I think I had probably taken my uh, my mobility and my my physicality for granted for a long time, and it wasn't until I was kind of locked in a non-functioning body for uh, you know it's not, it, not all that long, but for a year, year and a half, um, I was I was pretty miserable. I was you know frankly I was pretty suicidal for a while, 
um, and in just agony. And all really all the doctors really wanted to do for me um, at the time was just give me more pain meds. And uh, pain meds don't don't do a whole lot for me except make me just sit around and drool on myself. And that just doesn't help with the the mental state. Yeah, absolutely not. Right. And so um, the other kind of the other follow up question is, is what's it like also to be just part of a, a documentary, which I think is really exciting to one showcase, you know, human achievement and an ingenuity, but also triumph. Uh, so what's, what's it like being a part of the aug- augmented documentary? It's, it's kind of thrilling in, you know, in a way, like I growing, growing up, um, as a kid, I used to watch Nova programs all the time. Um, I used to go to the Boston Museum of Science as much as I could as a kid, just love that place. And there, now there's actually an exhibit that features the, the climbing robot foot. Um, and I don't know, to, to get to be a, a part of this groundbreaking um, technology is I don't know. I can't think of any other phrase other than it's pretty thrilling. Um, a kid who has always, always enjoyed science and technology, and now I'm kind of living in it. Definitely, which is what the Nova program always showcases yeah. and highlights, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, what's what's next or what's the future hold for you, Jim? Um, just more more climbing trips. Um, we're actually working out the details of of filming a segment for uh, a show that um, explores where human technology is now versus what's in the avatar movies and so they the the producers of that series want to feature the the climbing robot legs so we're kind of working out the details for that um other than that, I just I have kind of a whole summer planned of climbing trips and um, spending time with my family and travel as, as much as I can. Um, and then in the fall, I actually participated last fall in this 24 hour, <clears throat> excuse me, this 24 hour climbing competition in Arkansas called 24 Hours of Horseshoe Hell. And you, it's, it's, it's kind of the most fun climbing event that I've ever done. And you just, in 24 hour span, you climb as many routes as you can, um, climbing all through the night and everybody's doing the same thing and just having a great time. It was, it was kind of hilarious how much fun that was. Um, but there was kind of a funny story is like, you know, an amputee walking around a climbing area kind of stands out and this one young guy <laughs> uh walks by and he says oh man it's it's so cool that you're out here um and i said why because i'm old <laughs> and this somebody overheard that and they're like oh man way to call him out like ableism at its best or something <laughs> right right <laughs> <laughs> like yeah you know uh amputees can do stuff too i guess 